Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank You again for bringing this meager band of believers together on Your day, the Lord's day, to worship You and to lift You up. And we want to turn our attention, Lord, to Your Word. It is accurate. It is inerrant. It is dependable. It is authoritative. And I pray, God, that we would respond accordingly with humble obedience, with joy, knowing that what Your Word has to say is what is best for us. And that by living by it, we bring You honor and glory. So give us obedient hearts, Father, as the Word is spoken. Give us ears to hear that we may listen. In Jesus' name, Amen. Okay. invite you to open your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians, and we will continue in our study. And I think on this subject matter, it was planned last Lord's Day that it would be the last time we talked about it, but oh no, we didn't get through it, so we're going to spend one more sermon on this most important subject of sex and marriage, marital intimacy the way that the Bible teaches it, because that's what we care about. So we will continue in our study, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I invite you to read along with me. Let's start in verse 1. Now concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. But this I say by way of concession, not of command. Yet I wish that all men were even as I am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. So, once again, reforming marriage, holy sex. The subject matter we are covering is its diligence, devotion, and defense. And of course, this is part two. We started this uh, study uh, last Lord's Day, the second of 1 Corinthians 7, but dealing with these three important subject matters. And we, we really only got through the diligence of holy sex and reminding, and it's worth reminding ourselves every time we broach this subject, that this is a holy activity. We are not supposed to think of it as something that is merely earthy or carnal or merely physical and therefore is unimportant or somehow debased, or ungodly, or something we don't talk about. All of our activity is to be holy. It is to be an activity of devotion unto the Lord to bring Him honor and glory. And so, sex does not fall outside of the purview. And as, as we should expect, we say this so often, especially as it refers to love. The more precious something is, the more that the devil will try to malign it. The more precious something is, the more it will be perverted. Right? Same with love, same with sex, and since sex is an expression, among other things, of marital love and faithfulness, we shouldn't expect anything differently to happen. And I think that is proven by the fact that sex is so maligned, and one of the primary ways we see that expressed, as we have covered previously, is that sex is made to be an idol. It's a be-all and end-all. It's talked about in so many different contexts, it is misunderstood, it is misrepresented, it is often glorified in its various perversions, and so what does the Christian do but go to Scripture and see what God has to say about it to rejoice in the things that are righteous, and of course to keep at bay those things which are unrighteous expressions of something that is most precious to us, something that is from the beginning. As God told Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Right? Have kids. That, of course, is done through sex. And so come with me, if you will. Uh, 1 Corinthians 7, continuing in our study. Remember, we talked about 
uh, holy sex and its diligence. And one of the things we cover just by way of review is being diligent in pointing out the things that threaten holy sex. Now look at the passage with me. He says this, stop depriving one another. See, that is a call for diligence. One of the things that afflicts faithful sex in marriage is laziness. Simply not paying attention to it. Simply not taking heed to whether or not you are depriving one another. And withholding this thing from one another. And so he says, stop doing it. As if this activity or lack thereof is happening already. So this is something to be on guard against. Stop depriving one another. That's Paul's first objective right there. And then he goes and says, except by agreement for a time that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And so this is one of the reasons that sex goes sour and even sometimes non-existent in a marriage relationship is there is a lack of diligence. There is a lack of devotion. And so we have to be, we are called to return to that, to return to that diligence and paying attention and call to mind the things that do matter in marriage and that keep that relationship, that bond strong between a man and wife. Even the words diligence that are used in the Old Testament and New Testament speak to things, for instance, in, in, in Hebrew, the word for diligence is often used as mayod, mayod in the Hebrew, which in some contexts just means very. It's an intensifier. The Lord saw all that He had made, and behold, it was very good. It was very good. That much is made clear. In the NT, in the New Testament, the word for diligent is used to speak of something that is done carefully or speedily with haste, meaning that there's a priority to it. It's worth paying attention to, and if you fail to pay attention to it, if you fail to give that thing to due diligence, there is suffering that follows. There are consequences. And so we should expect nothing different when it comes to the lack of sex or lack of diligence toward marital intimacy. And so Paul warns us against that, and last week I gave several examples of, of how that comes about. And so today we get into the second part, and that is devotion. And so, after he says, stop depriving one another, he says this, he, he, he qualifies this statement. Except by agreement for a time. Except by agreement for, for a time. So that, so there's a purpose here, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. And then, of course, he says, don't linger here, but come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And so on one hand, we can appreciate Paul's acknowledgement of humanity. We are people. We're made in the image of God, and we have certain physical urges. And when those urges go unfulfilled, there is temptation. That is the way of life. That is the, the way of living in a fallen world. And so this is a way to keep on guard against it. And so those boundaries are set and those instructions are given in a most clear way. And I would say that most believers do not think of marital intimacy in this fashion. Regular devotion to this activity, both to sex and prayer, is hardly a default setting. And so look what Paul says. Don't deprive each other except by agreement. And of course, if you are going to agree on something, that means that you are coming together and actually talking about it. You are talking about something that merits prayer, a time of consideration, a time of reflection that for a time does not mean sexual activity in your marriage. And I think most of this is foreign to us. How often do we talk to our spouses about this very thing? Oh, sweetheart, we need to take time apart from one another just for a while, just for a set amount of time. Here's the time. Here's, here's my suggestion. Men, you have to lead on this as well. So that we can devote ourselves to prayer. That kind of discussion is hardly even mentioned in the marriage relationship. This kind of scenario where we have to say, okay, we're, we can't be together because there is something pressing, and so we will stay apart for a while so that we can devote ourselves to prayer. So no, don't miss this. There is agreement. That means a discussion, and that means leadership by the husband. And then he says, so that 
you may devote yourselves to prayer. So not just any willy-nilly purpose of staying apart. There is a, there is a definitive purpose here so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. There is a prescribed time. So you discuss it and say, okay, we are going to pray and we are going to be apart. And then, of course, within that very agreement, we will not stay apart for a long time because we understand that we may struggle with self-control. We have desires and they, and they will grow over time. And so we must take consideration toward one another's needs and then come together again so that we do not do things to one another or deprive one another of intimacy so that we are victim to temptation. But this is it. When do a husband and wife not come together? It's for the purpose of prayer. So there's not a slew of different options here. When are a husband and wife to be apart? For prayer. And in some, uh, some, some versions actually add fasting, but in most of the, the superior manuscripts, it's simply prayer. So I will, I will limit my discussion to prayer today. But that is what Paul says. But note that this is how, that this mutual agreement speaks to how serious intimacy is taken. And we take prayer seriously as well, but when something is, something is pressing, and Paul doesn't really say exactly what the occasion to pray is, but we just know that there is something to pray for that is so important, that is so pressing, perhaps it could be an occasion where there is a situation that is so pressing, so urgent, so important, so engaging that you, you don't even have those physical urges for a time. And so that is the time to pray. By mutual agreement, we don't use prayer as an excuse or an out either. And so that is to say, most of us hardly pay any attention to this. Most of us, most of us, many of us in here probably have never even had this discussion with our spouse over the course of our marriage, whether, whether you've been married a month or whether you've been married for 40 years. This, this text is one of the least applied, I would say, in all of scripture. We just don't talk about it. So on one hand, you're lacking diligence in your sex life and you're taking so many days off already, then what is there to talk about? What is there to, what, what is this mutual agreement anyway? What's the point of it? If you're not regularly tending to one another's physical needs. And so, the question comes, well, how often should we be coming together? And the answer is here. Frequently enough so that when you are apart, you actually have to talk about it. And the occasion here is when you've agreed to pray about a specific thing. So note what Paul is doing here. Note the connection he's making, and it's a connection we don't often make, is that a robust prayer life and a robust sex life walk hand in hand. Both should be practiced regularly more often than not. And we do have some clue as to Paul's instruction here. Uh, in, in, when he uses prayer, there's a definite article in the Greek, which means the prayer. Devote yourself to the prayer. And that, of course, points, points to the fact that there is something very detailed, something very specific and urgent where you need to take time apart. And, and we would hope that the Spirit would, would guide our hearts to instruct us both as man and wife to know when that is a particular occasion to do that. And so, you know, we kind of think, well, where, where is Paul getting this from? And I think there's a couple connections in the Old Testament that we can at least get, uh, gain some clarity. But there are times in life when we concentrate directly on prayer. So the first one comes uh, way back in the Old Testament from the book of Exodus, chapter 19. And this is just before the Ten Commandments are delivered. This is when the Lord comes down to the mountain and he's going to dwell with the people of Israel, the, the old covenant is going to be given. So there's a lot going on. So here we see a momentous occasion that calls for a period of consecration. And so going from verse 10, you don't have to turn there, but just listen along. In Exodus 19, verse 10, it says this, The Lord also said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments. So there is a time of, of purification. There is a time of preparation. Kind of, kind of lends itself to that occasion when, when Moses is, uh, 
He, he's a shepherd and the Lord calls to him from the burning bush and says, Moses, take off your sandals for the ground you're standing on is holy, right? So, so that is Moses consecrating himself. He's, he's, the Lord is helping Moses prepare to be in his presence. And so it tells us, of course, we never wander into the, the presence of God carelessly or haphazardly. We do so devotedly, diligently, focused on what he has to say to us. And so in verse 11, he says this, Exodus 19, and let them be ready for the third day, for on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And then to verse 15, he said to the people, be ready for the third day, do not go near a woman. And do not go near a woman means refrain, abstain from sexual relations, because this is a time of consecration. This is a special, unique, devoted, and I would say prescribed time same as in the New Testament, where a man cannot go near his wife. And of course, the time has to do with consecration, being in the presence of God for a special event. To focus on the Lord's presence and, and the giving of His Word. So we see also the, a similar thing in, in Joel chapter 2. And this one deals more with a call to repentance. Indeed, we've all experienced that. I think there's, we just understand that there are times in life, right, where we, we are not walking with the Lord. We've let, we've let the other issues of life kind of, kind of blur, uh, a focus and a time given to our relation, investing in our relationship with the Lord in a variety of ways. And so Israel faces this challenge in Joel chapter two. There is a call to repent. Remember, there are warnings of judgment. And going in verse 12, says this, Yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. Right? A call to repentance. And with fasting, weeping, and mourning. Right? So abstain from food. Rather than being joyful, rather than laughter, weep and mourn. Then in verse 16, gather the people, sanctify the congregation. So the same sort of wording, the same picture is going on here as in Exodus chapter 19. It says, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders. So even the leaders are involved. Gather the children and the nursing infants. So what is he saying? Let all of the congregation of Israel hear this. Let the bridegroom come out of his room and let the bride out of her bridal chamber. That is tantamount to saying, do not go near a woman. Abstain from sexual relations for a while. While you hear the voice of the Lord. Whether When you exercise repentance, when you consecrate yourself to re for the purpose of returning to the Lord. Because at this point, even something as precious as sexual relations will be a distraction to this most urgent call to repentance. And then he says, let the priest, the Lord's ministers, weep between the porch and the altar and let them say, spare your people, O Lord, and do not make your inheritance a reproach. A byword among the nations. Why should they, why should they among the people say, where is their God? So note the context of this, of not going near a woman, of taking time away. This is, this is not, this is not unique, uh, to the New Testament. Paul isn't bringing this out of nowhere. This is based in the Old Testament where there are specific times when marital relations are abstained from in order to concentrate on either repentance or a particular appearing of the Lord. And so even that was limited to this. And so, of course, when we come back to 1 Corinthians, we see that there is a particular urgency, and it's hard to say, you know, again, specifically to your, in your particular context, what is the occasion of this? Okay. But what we do know for sure is that there will be occasions and they, and these occasions come through agreement, but make sure you keep those obligations. One, that you're setting those boundaries of time, that this time of prayer is not used to completely derail your sex life together. It is not that prayer is meant to minimize marital intimacy, and yet they do walk hand in hand together. And also we remember, these urges, these desires will naturally build because you're human, when you are apart. And of course, that is why Paul comes to our aid and gives us a ready defense. And he says, pray. 
devote yourselves to prayer. And there is something about prayer which guards our heart against temptation. Even Jesus says, pray so that you do not lose heart. Jesus says to his disciples on the night he was arrested, be watchful and pray. Why? So that you do not fall into temptation. And so this is what Paul is telling us. He doesn't want this time of prayer. So we think, okay, just because we're engaging in a holy activity of prayer does not necessarily mean we are going to be completely free of all temptation. We have to live, we still are obligated to please one another in the marriage bed and to make sure that we are satisfied with one another. Because as emphasized at the end of last week's sermon, I told you guys that as man and wife, that is one way, the only way, the only outlet, your only recourse for sexual satisfaction. That's it. One category, one object, that is all. And so don't test those boundaries through depriving one another of marital relations. And so what Paul, to, to review Paul, he says these things, and so, so in devoting yourselves to prayer, and therefore devoting yourselves to marital fidelity, these things are agreed upon, so you've talked about it, there are time limits set, and there's also a purpose, a purpose to pray, and an outcome that you do not fall into temptation. So I think another point we often miss from this text is that time apart sexually is the exception, not the rule, right? If you're never having a discussion about being apart so that you can pray, you are probably not making love sufficiently. So file that in the back of your mind or the front. But don't miss Paul's message. And of course, this spills over into our final point. And that is the defense, the defense of holy sex. We show diligence in relationship to it, devotion in relationship to it, but we also defend it. We, de- we set boundaries. And so look at your text again in 1 Corinthians 7. Paul says immediately, then come together again, right? Don't stay apart for long. Do not linger. Do not grow complacent. Come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of of self-control. He even invokes the word Satan. Sometimes we think, why is Satan bothering with us? But he knows that there is, there is an adversary. He is our enemy. He is our accuser. And I, and I think that invoking the name of Satan himself is totally appropriate because he hates everything God hates. Or he hates everything God loves and he loves everything God hates. So he hates marriage. He hates sex. He hates God and he hates everything that God stands for. And so what comes out of this? Well, nothing expresses the beauty of redemption as does marriage. And so it makes perfect sense that our enemy would be personally involved in mounting a strategic and violent offense against it. Scripture says don't give the devil a foothold, right? You give him a foothold, he'll just swallow you whole. You give him an inch, he'll take a mile. Thank you very much. And so we are to be on guard against this. And this marriage that we hopefully enjoy together as man and wife is so precious to us that it is important concerning our testimony of the Lord Jesus. And as we studied way early in our study of marriage, we said that our marriages are constantly preaching something about Jesus. We are always saying something, especially you husbands, We are always saying something about who Jesus is. We are always saying something about what Jesus loves. We are always saying something about His priorities and His purposes. We are never not preaching something about Jesus, and that's why we are so diligent and attentive toward our own marriages and our wives and our children. And so if we allow temptation to invade us unawares, if we allow, if we give Satan a foothold. If we are somehow drawn into unfaithfulness, then what are we saying about Jesus Christ? We are saying that He is unfaithful. We are saying that it is not His priority to be a faithful leader in His marriage to His bride. Wives, conversely, if you fall into temptation, if you are not diligent within marital intimacy, you are saying 
That Christ's bride is faithless and wayward and defiled. That purity is not important. That sanctification, that submission is not important. It's just you doing you. You doing your own thing. And this, of course, is devastating to the Christian witness. Say there's a couple things that are very potent to the Christian witness. And one is our gathering together on the Lord's day to worship in spirit and in truth. And I would say the other is marriage. That is a potent witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when we fall into temptation, when we fail to uphold our obligations to one another in marital faithfulness, we are simply showing the world that though we claim Christ, our marriages are really no different. The world loves to scoff at Christianity on that one thing. Oh, have you seen the statistics? Christian marriages end up in divorce as often as non-Christian marriages. I would contest that because there are a lot of people who say they are Christians and really are not. And I think the evidence of that is how they do marriage, right? And yet that boast is made regularly. And of course, that is an affront to the power of the gospel because it says inherently, but the gospel really does not transform us. It really does make no difference. It's all superstition. It's all wishful thinking. It's all willpower. It's not the supernatural, ongoing, inner working of the Spirit of God. It says that our marriages are really no different. We are as toxic and dysfunctional as the most ardent pagan. Jesus says in the Gospel of John that the devil is the father of lies, but also that he was a murderer from the beginning and he has never stopped. He has never ceased that killing intent. Even though the Lord has taken away his throne, The devil is as eager as ever to undermine the Christian witness. And what way to get to marriage, get to a marriage than through a spouse who believes that they have somehow been defrauded? Okay, Don't miss this part. Remember earlier on, the husband must fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise also the wife to her husband. You are obligated to one another. You belong to one another. The wife does not have authority over her own body. That is, she cannot go in this application refusing her husband for a time without consequences, nor can the husband without severe consequences. You can remember, you can prevail upon one another freely for the fulfillment of marital intimacy because you belong to each other. You are not your own. You are not autonomous. You belong to the Lord and you belong to each other in a sacred one flesh union endorsed by God himself. And this is precious. And so what way to undermine a marriage than through a spouse who believes that their spouse is somehow failing to uphold their end of the bargain? Let me say this before I go any further. No matter the failures of your spouse, right, even if they are withholding intimacy from you, does not give you the right to then go and be unfaithful. As difficult as it is, you are called as a Christian to be faithful, to live righteously, And to still uphold your marriage vow. Yes, it's not easy. It is easier said than done. But do not let the sin of one give you an excuse or give you any, or make you think you have any grounds to behave unrighteously or unfaithfully. But going on, think about how the serpent tempted Eve. And it's the same, it's the same wording, just repackaged often. What is, what does the serpent say? to Eve. The first thing, he denies the consequences of sin. Let's get that out of the way. Has God really said that? And then he says, you shall surely not die. God knows. God knows that if you eat of the fruit, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What is the devil telling Eve? God is holding out on you. There is more knowledge. Your eyes could be open right now. They're closed. There's something that God isn't telling you, and you deserve to know what that is. Right? Marriage is supposed to be joyful. You are called to be sexually fulfilled. You deserve this. It is your right. And that's, that's, that's how it happens. That's how it begins. And the enemy capitalizes on that with sinister intent. But that's the first thing he says. He doesn't even make it about your spouse. He makes it about God. Of course he would. We're Christians. And we're to view everything in relationship to God. 
So the first step, step to temptation is to question the provision of God, to question His goodness, to question His grace and mercy and His loving kindness, to question everything about God, because if He can make you question God, He can make you deny God, and if you deny God, you're going to live life as if there is no God. And of course, that's going to apply to marriage. You're going to look at marriage as if there is no God. And if there is no God, you can do whatever, you know, tit for tat, basically. Your spouse holds out on you, well, you can do the same thing to them. Your spouse does what amounts in your mind to betrayal, well, you can do the same thing. Because right now you're living as if there is no God. You're living as if there is no standard. You're living as if there is no gospel. You're living as if the grace of God is not sufficient to preserve you in these very difficult moments. But it all goes back to God. God must be holding out on me. And this isn't fair. This isn't just. Therefore, I need to do what I got to do, and so you do it. And that's the trap. And of course, as desire increases due to a lack of fulfillment, the more vulnerable you become to temptation. And so I just want to go over with you today the various temptations that come our way. And this is where the application comes in, friends. This is where the defense comes in. And it is a call for you, whether you are a husband or whether you are a wife, to raise, to, to raise a defense against these things. That when you fulfill one another sexually, when you are diligent, when you are consistent in coming together, and it is the rule, not the exception, you will guard one another against these temptations. So I want you to really think about these temptations. I don't want to sound like, like this is a threat, do this or else, but I want to view it from a, a, a positive point of view that, that when you fulfill one another's obligation to each other in obedience to the Lord, first and foremost, you will guard one another against these temptations. This is by no means an exhaustive list, but I want you to think about these things. This, this is what you're defending. This is what you're protecting one another against. And you are both obligated, as the, the Spirit of God empowers you, to do these things. And, these are, and I think these are rather obvious. But the first, of course, is going to be anger. All that, all that pent-up drive that remains unfulfilled, that remains unreleased, you may get angry at your spouse. You may feel like you're gonna, you need to, you have so much pent up energy, you're gonna go and raid and pillage a defenseless seaside village. That's how enraged you feel. So rather than bringing these concerns to your spouse, you just get angry. And contrary to what James tells his readers, the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Don't think that getting angry in this regard is going to be the exception to that. If you are angry at your spouse because of unfulfilled sexual desires, here's I'm going to tell you something world life-changing. If you are angry at your spouse because of a lack of sexual fulfillment, go and talk to your spouse about it. I mean, right? Like, yeah. Communication. It's a tough conversation. It may not go well at first. It may not go well at second, third, or fourth. But keep talking about it. Especially you husbands. You are the leader. You don't wait for your wife to lead. You don't sit and say, oh, why bother? No, bother. Please, for the sake of your marriage, bother. Keep bringing it up. Keep talking about it. Of course, bring it to, bring it to her in a spirit of love and gentleness. And if you remain angry, repent from your anger because this kind of anger will not achieve the righteousness of God. It will, retrieve, it will achieve copious amounts of unrighteousness let me tell you. And anger does not translate well into intimacy anyway. Nothing kills the mood like one spouse being mad at the other. Are you mad at me? Well, who's going to admit that? No, no, sweetheart, I'm not mad at you. Okay, well, you seem mad at me. No, nah, no, nah, I'm not mad at you. Yeah, you're seething. You are smoldering inside, but no, no, don't want to bother. You guys need to refine the fine art of bothering, of prevailing upon one another, because this is what the scripture says. Your spouse has authority over you, and you have authority over your spouse. And so, if you really believe that, you will be willing to bother one another concerning these things, especially marital intimacy or the lack thereof. So, communication is absolutely vital to these situations, and both of you have to humble yourselves and simply discuss it and work through these situations. Confess your, fail, your failures to one another, forgive one another, and then engage in conjugal fellowship of the makeup kind in that order. Here's the second one flowing from anger, and that is bitterness. 
Bitterness is like anger, but, but anger is sort of the more explosive kind, right? Flying off the handle, where bitterness is typically more of the, uh, the long-term abiding resentment against your spouse. And even saying that just hurts. The spouse that you are to be devoted to over the course of your life. Women, the men you are submit to submit to. Men, the woman you are supposed to love. Imagine that being displaced by bitterness and rancor, and you just can't think a good thought about them. And so you nurture that resentment. And of course, bitterness is going to affect your sex drive and your willingness to engage. And it's due to the fact of a long-term effect of feeling unwanted, undesired, even unloved. And that, of course, snowballs into this consistent calling to mind of past failures and disappointments that will surely drive a wedge between you. It is hard for married couples, even Christian couples, to sort of isolate a sin or isolate an offense. Typically, we just reach back into history and we bring every offense up that they've ever committed against us. That's wicked. Stop doing that. Deal with the sin at hand, right? Keep current. And as much as we want to make connections to the past, try to keep the main thing at hand. Keep the main thing the main thing. And deal with that first. And then deal with the other things. But it's so necessary to guard your heart against bitterness. But this instruction is more tailored toward the one who is withholding sex and acting disinterested. That is, don't be the one who nurtures bitterness in your spouse because of a long-term failure to pay attention to your spouse's sexual needs. Don't be a catalyst for that bitterness. Don't be clueless toward one another. That, of course, just means paying attention to one another and meeting one another's needs. Here's another one. I think this is a big one, too, an often complex one. Is that you are, guard, you are protecting one another. You are guarding one another from fear. And I would say fear on the part of both parties here. Fear of disappointing your spouse and then fear of wondering what they think about you. Fear of the future because of the current issues that you're enduring and yet not tending to. So here's how this thinking goes. We've already talked about like, okay, if, if, if I'm being refused uh, marital relations, the question comes up, well, what do I have to do to get her to like me? Instantly you fall into sort of this works-based mentality. What do I have to do? On one hand, try to avoid going down that line of thinking. And then on the other hand, if you're the one withholding marital intimacy, again, don't put your spouse in that position of fear and anxiety. I don't want him to leave me. I don't want him to be angry. I don't want him to be bitter. So I need to make sure I keep him satisfied. That is how a fearful wife thinks about her husband. Now, of course, a desire to please one another is not bitter or is not bad in and of itself. However, if you desire to please one another only from the sense that, only from the hope that something bad doesn't happen, only to avert disaster, you are living in fear. Now, remember how Peter compares marriage to the grace of life. Marriage is an expression, the most profound expression of the grace of life. So, as in all things, in the kingdom of God, we live through the lens of grace. We are a people who are showered in grace. All things are because of grace. All things are out of God's abundant goodness and care for His people. They are not works-based. And so marriage is to reflect the church's relationship to Christ. Now, let's, let's try to reorient this. Let's go from a fear-based marriage to a grace-based marriage. Do we please Christ because we are afraid He will depart from us? What's the answer? Speak to me. No, not at all. Paul would say, God forbid or may it never be. Do we live in such a fear that believes that Christ will take another bride if we fail Him? Do we live in that kind of fear? No. So how do we relate to Him? Not out of fear that He's going to abandon us. And of course, we, we do fear the Lord. We fear Him in holy reverence. It's a fear that clings 
and remains under His watchful care. But there's so much more than that. We honor the Lord in faith and love. Right? We please the Lord in faith and in love. We do not serve Him so that He will not forsake us. We serve Him knowing that He never will. See, that's the, that's, that's the transformation from fear-based service to the Lord to faith or love-based serving. We, we, we serve the Lord, again, not, not because we want to be saved. We, fear, we, we serve the Lord because we already are. And that is a huge paradigm shift. One is completely works-based, the other is grace-based, empowered by the Spirit of God Himself. And so, how does this impact, how does this impact our mindset toward marriage and intimacy? Well, I think it's pretty simple. We relate to one another out of love and faith from the viewpoint of grace. I will please my wife because I know she cares for me. I will please my husband because I know he loves me. Not because I hope he will love me. I already know he loves me. Remember, you are a gift of God to one another, and so we, you view one another as man and wife from that lens. That's your starting point. It's not this, this fearful hope of abandonment that you perform all of these marital duties. That's just going to wreck your marriage. You uphold these obligations in marital intimacy precisely because who you are to one another. Because what marriage is, not because of what you hope marriage is going to be. So fulfill these obligations not out of fear, but out of love and in faith. As an ex- Again, another example. like uh, Fulfill these obligations as an expression of faithfulness, not because you hope your spouse will be faithful. Right? Fulfill them as an expression of love not because you hope you will be loved. It's because love is already there. You you perform these actions, you fulfill these obligations on the platform of love and faith, not love and faith as a desire. right? Not of things hoped for, but of things that are already built into your marriage. Because God has brought you together. So hope that makes sense. Another one is emotional distance. Yes, emotion matters in marriage. You want to feel close to one another. And fulfilling your sexual obligations to one another does that. It brings a closeness. It brings a bond of joy and oneness. And that bond of joy and oneness is compromised when you are away from one another an undue amount of time. Here's another one. Some of us can resonate with this, but depression I don't speak of clinical depression, but more of a despondent and anxious heart in which you're always second-guessing your spouse's devotion and care for you. And that's a bad place to be. And we see sort of the, the, the difficulty of enduring sadness. In Proverbs 18.14, we see a man's spirit will endure sickness, but a crushed spirit who can bear. Right? There is something particularly difficult about a crushed spirit. Proverbs 12.25 says this, Anxiety in a man's heart weighs it down, but a good word makes it glad. Proverbs 15.13, A joyful heart makes a cheerful face, but when the heart is sad, the spirit is broken. I mean, that escalated quickly. And so what's the point of bringing this up? It is simply this. It is a call that you don't put one another in this position. And that comes from being diligent to fulfill one another's needs. Devoted to fulfilling one another's needs. And defending that fulfillment. Protecting them against a temptation to to engage in unfaithfulness. Sexual starvation and alienation amplify loneliness and can leave the spirit broken. But listen to Proverbs 16.24. Pleasant words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. See, sexual alienation is a kind of silence that is very difficult for the heart of a man or a woman to bear. And so I bring up Proverbs 16.24 to say this, make it a regular practice in your life to speak sweet words to one another. There should be a sweetness in the way that you associate one another. Speak softly toward one another. Remind one another regularly of your love and devotion. Even if it is only in passing. Be an expert at that. 
speaking sweetly to one another, that words would be as a honeycomb. Here's another thing you protect yourselves against, and I think this one's really important because it covers the ones I just mentioned. Dishonesty. Pretending like everything is okay, but it really isn't. All these things need to be discussed. And God calls you to work through these things according to His Word and according to His revealed will. And so that requires putting your pride aside, humbling yourself, to quit being so touchy, to quit villainizing the other person for bringing them up and repent where repentance is needed. That's why I said, usually the first time down this trail, it's going to be difficult because it does come as a shock. It is hard to realize that you have been failing one another, and typically the response is one of despondency, sometimes anger, sometimes blame shifting. And so both parties, whether you are going to the person or whether you are on the receiving end, to humble yourself, to have a teachable heart, and to be willing to listen to one another, even if that other person is wrong. That's how you work things out. Here's another thing I think very practical you guard yourselves against, and that is lust, attraction to other people. And we say attraction is a natural thing, but it can be perverted as because anything. And you protect yourselves from, from, from undue or perverse attraction, that is lust, when you fulfill one another's sexual needs consistently. And lastly, leading from lust, again, very practical here, and I think this is what Paul is getting at, so you're not tempted due to your lack of self-control. And note this, Paul recognizes limitations. If we have the Spirit of God, we have some working in, in us as, uh, regarding self-control. We all have it to a degree. But even Paul recognizes limitations. Don't be tempted because of your lack of self-control. And that is, don't be unfaithful. Don't commit adultery. Don't put your spouse in that situation where they are so starved of intimacy, they feel unloved, undesired, unwanted, but they go somewhere else to find it. Again, that's, it's no excuse to sin, but, a, but, but you want to ask the person who is depriving their spouse of sexual fulfillment, you want to ask them, what did you think was going to happen? It, adultery is sin, and it must be repented from, but, but really, when it comes down to knowing our humanity, what did you expect was going to happen when you treated your spouse that way? I mean, earlier on in ministries, different, different church that I pastored, but I actually uh, knew a gentleman who, who, went, who went through this, went through this for years, and what was really ironic is he had he had eight children, but he was so deprived uh, from his wife of marital intimacy, even to the point of acting grossed out by him, that he finally went online and looked for a connection elsewhere. And unfortunately, the marriage ended in, a, in, in divorce. Once the adultery happened, there was no way back. And even in the midst of, of, of counsel, discussion, just earnest uh, biblical counseling, once that betrayal had taken place, there was, there was, it was really impossible to turn around. There was so much resentment on both, from both parties. You know, we could, it's easy to point the finger at either one, but, but you think about what, what Jesus says, you know, there, there will be, there will be stumbling blocks, right? Stumbling blocks will come. But woe to the man through whom that stumbling block comes. Don't be a stumbling block to your spouse because of unmet, unfulfilled sexual desire. It's easy to point the finger at them and say, oh, well, you committed adultery. You stumbled, and yet you are the one through whom that stumbling block came. Be on guard against that. And keep, once again, keep... Keep the conversation open. And nothing I, nothing I say is designed to be weaponized in your marriage. It's biblical counsel that I want, you, want all of you to use to build and strengthen your marriage on all fronts and in all contexts. And so that is what it looks like to build a defense in your marriage. And one of the great things about marriage is that you think about this. You're protecting, your, you're protecting one another from sin. And we have to understand the absolute devastating consequences of sin. Think about that. Think about that precious calling for a moment. That this is a way of protecting your husband or wife from devastating sin. And take that a degree further. What does sin always produce? Produces death. And you're protecting one another against that. 
And what a calling, what a privilege that is. And so in, in closing, Paul says this, I say this by way of concession, not of command. Meaning he's, again, he, Paul is aware of what they're going through. He's aware of their, of their humanity. He's aware of their human needs. He's not commanding everyone to get married. He's not commanding anyone to stay single, but he's simply making provision for both. He's saying, I know, I know what the situation is like. I'm aware of your particular needs as married people. Um, and then he goes on to say, Yet I wish all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift, one in this manner and another in that. Right? So it's like, let each one be convinced in his own mind. He's not commanding people to get married. But if you are going to get married, treasure your spouse. Take them as your own. And do what is necessary for that diligence, devotion, and defense within that marital union. And I trust that you will be blessed by it. So let's stop there, and we will continue next Lord's Day in our study of marriage. Let's pray together. Father, thank you again for, for, this, for this word from your scriptures. We, we love you, and we thank you that you have loved us and called us to yourself. And we thank you, God, for this precious gift of marriage that can be a reflection of your love and devotion to us. And I do pray, Lord, that um, given the friction that is often at hand in regards to marital intimacy, that uh, each husband and wife here would view one another in light of grace to live a life, uh, a married life in, in faith and in love, not in fear, that they would view one another as your gift to them and, and so treasure and, and view as precious, God, the, the gift of marriage. Lord, we need eyes to see uh, so badly in regards to that and we can't do it without you. And so we ask for your provision. Um, we ask for your, the care of your, your Holy Spirit and that we could rejoice as we see marriage be a sanctifying work and as each man and wife here work together to pursue you and to serve you, but also, God, to fulfill one another's needs and uh, work together in seeing your kingdom advance uh, that you would be glorified on earth as in heaven. And all these things, Father, we pray and commit to you. In Jesus' name, amen.